Hello, family. Have I told you lately that I love you? <laughs> I love you guys. And, but you know what's more important? Uh, Jesus loves you. Grab your Bibles. Open them up. Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. We're in Genesis chapter 4, 17. We're going to pick up right where we left off uh, in the story last week. If you remember, God showed mercy on Cain, the murderer, and he let him live under his protection. He didn't go with God's presence, but he did go with God's protection. And today, uh, we're going to see the children that Cain produced. Okay, so it's going to be interesting. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujel, and Mahujel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You, wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding you, a young man for striking you. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Thank you. Crossway, this is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good Shepherd Jesus, speak to our hearts, change our lives, in your sacred name we pray, amen. Amen. Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, or, or KSP as she's known on Twitter, uh, she's the research professor of English and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, she's also a multi-published author, and she's a leading voice in the need for Christians to regain their role in producing great literature and for Christians to become better readers, which can help us form better societies. That's part of her belief and part of her mission. Uh, she recently interacted with the 2019 film Little Women, directed by Greta Gerdwig. And she made this insightful comment about what makes enduring literature. Dr. Pryor says, quote, Indeed, the novel seems at times to be warring between these two contrasting worldviews, romanticism on one hand and realism on the other. This is a strength, not a flaw. Inferior art advocates. Good art wrestles. Little women wrestles, close quote. 
She's talking about the tension that's present in this story, the tensions present in the story that wrestles with all the reality of life. For example, the support of the Civil War, but also the poverty that it brought, uh, that resulted. The, the exhilarating uh, feeling of romantic love, or, or are we going to talk about the contractual marriage that provided security for women at the time? Uh, the boundaries of companionship versus the freedom of being single and following your career and your dream. See, Little Women doesn't advocate for what the reader should think. It merely advocates that we think and that we think deeply. The story calls you and I as the reader to wrestle Acknowledging that complexity is what makes it such a compelling story. It shows that the human condition is actually complex. It's not simple. That's why it's an enduring story. Brothers and sisters, deep in our heart, if we are honest, we want God to be simple, don't we? Not only that, we want people to be simple. Right? In fact, we want the entire universe to be where there are clear good guys who always act good and there are clear bad guys who are always acting bad. That's the kind of world you and I want to live in. And you know what? That is a really simplistic way of dividing up the world. That is a story we want to live in. Why? Because it's just easier to make sense out of that kind of story. No self-reflection involved. No thinking needed. No wrestling required. It's Saturday morning cartoons. Good guy, bad guy. Real easy, right? But see, the truth is, the truth that the scriptures are confronting us with today is that, is that with very few exceptions, by the way, people are not entirely good all the time, are they? And people are not entirely bad uh, all the time. The reality is that we are simultaneously both. And we are both at any given moment in the day. And that's a messy universe to live in, isn't it? And we don't like messiness. That's complex. See, here's our problem. The human condition is it's more complex than we're willing to accept. But God wants you and I to accept this because it's the very complexity of our condition that requires a divine solution. Did you hear what I said? He wants us to accept this complexity because it's the very complexity of our human condition that requires a divine solution, not a human solution. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. The fir first part we're going to see in this text that was read, the first part of our the human condition is this, that since the Great Rebellion, we have advanced in civilization. Miracle of miracles. Since the rebellion, we've actually advanced in civilization. It's right here in the text, 20 through 22. Abdabor Jabal, 
He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. We're going to come back to that phrase, have tents and, and livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. So all the descendants of that guy, his descendants, they're like the musicians. Okay? Uh, Zillabor uh, Tubal-Cain, he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. And so as the story goes, we know that Cain was told by God that he would be a fugitive and a wanderer upon the earth for the rest of his life. That was his Excuse me, that was his punishment. Why? For murdering his little brother that he was supposed to be taking care of, right? Now look what we have here. Instead of obeying God, wandering the earth, uh, instead of showing even the slightest bit of remorse for murder, uh, Cain defiantly decides he's going to settle down. He's tired of all this wandering. And he's going to settle down, and he's going to build himself a city. And he's going to name it after his son, Enoch. Cain's great-great-great-grandson, this is why this, this genealogy is in here, by the way. It makes a difference. His great, Cain's great-great-grandson, he's a man named Lamech who takes for himself two wives. And he gives them, those wives give him three sons and a daughter. And each of those sons that we just read, they impact the world. And they impact the world in a way that it's never the same. There's a lot in this little passage. We see here, Jabal was not simply a shepherd. Uh, the word that's used there uh, for uh, livestock, that little phrase there in the Hebrew, dwelling in tents, having livestock, uh, it includes horses, cattle, and even camels. Okay? So you have like beasts of burden, uh, transportation, uh, uh you know, basically a tractor. You have all these types of things as well as sheep. Okay, Jabal, in other words, he's a businessman. This is a city. This is a, like an urban environment now. And he's like a businessman and he's starting his own business. He breeds animals. He's basically invents animal husbandry. Okay? You move on to, to Jubal who invented musical instruments. There weren't musical instruments. Now because of him, there's musical instruments in the world, on the planet. His descendants, the Bible tells us, they're the artists, and they're the musicians, and they're the creatives in the city. His name, in fact, is abbreviation of the word Jubilee. Jubal. Jubilee. Right? There's like a happy tone to this uh, guy's name, a festive tone to his contribution to civilization, to the city of Enoch. Uh, though death is in the world, what has Jubal done in response to death in the world? He's made the, the, the lyre and the harp and instruments. He's made a way for us to cheer our spirits now and celebrate birthdays and, and help us weep with sad songs. You see how he's contributed? And Tubal Cain, he's a blacksmith. Which means what? That someone discovered metal in the ground. That hard, hard, cursed ground. Right? He invents the metallurgy arts, which is technology. It's technology that takes uh, humans out of the Stone Age. They were using stones to do stuff for their tools. And now what does the Bible tell us? They're in the Bronze Age and even the Iron Age, which is stronger than bronze, Right? 
They're in the modern age. Like, these people weren't prehistoric. They're only prehistoric to us. They were very cosmopolitan back in their day, right? This is the modern era. There's an explosion going on right here, right? They're going to, with the, the ground is hard, it's cursed, but guess what? Bronze and iron are going to subdue the ground. It's going to force the ground to produce food, right? God said the, the, the ground's going to work against us now, right? It's going to say no. And man is going to say, oh, yes. Through inventions. Iron and bronze also make highly sophisticated weapons of warfare. Whoever has this is, uh, has what they call uh, military superiority. Now, interestingly enough, Tubal is recorded as having a surname, Cain, Tubal Cain. And that's to remind us, the reader, what line he descends from. In other words, these brothers are rebels against God, just like their great, 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 great grandpa. And yet they're contributing to society in a very positive and very significant ways. What do you think about that? See, this is what, this is what I love about Genesis. And this is one of the reasons why I really love and I trust the Bible right here. Is that it, you know, this could have been written in a very edited way. Instead, Genesis says, instead of giving us this very, could have given us a very biased account of all unbelievers. Doesn't do that. Doesn't do that. This is a much more nuanced record of, of humanity that acknowledges that good can come from those that reject God. Good can come from those that reject the Creator. And we all benefit from them. Did you hear me, church? What these brothers have learned and what they have created and made has improved life for everybody in the city without exception, right? In fact, the entire world from this point of world civilization on, the entire world will never be the same. We're never going back before those times, right? Because of their achievement in civilization, though they do not worship God, though they do not acknowledge God, and they have not kept his relational mandate to humanity, they are still made in God's image and likeness. And they have kept the cultural mandate that God gave humans, right? Which is to be fruitful and multiply. They did that, and they're filling the earth. They're blessing people. God sovereignly has used their achievements to bless the entire world. And you and I are here because of these three brothers. And isn't that something to think of? Humans have done incredible feats and made life-altering discoveries. Humans who may or may not have any regard for the Creator have made breakthroughs in science and in technology that, will, that we benefit from even to this day. Early inventions like po pottery, and the, the sewing needle, oil lamps, bricks, baskets, and then even more modern inventions like the printing press, the telescope, anesthesia, penicillin, the heart-lung machine, the internet. Okay, They forever have benefited civilizations and brought people closer together. I mean, can, listen, just can you imagine a world without, without ibuprofen? Like, it doesn't exist. Can you imagine? Think about that next time you have a headache, okay? Just... I mean, could you imagine a world without electricity or without indoor plumbing? 
Imagine that next time you're on a long road trip, right? Humans have been able to create some of the most beautiful pieces of art that endure like Van Gogh's Starry Night. People still go travel there to see that painting. They and design enduring architecture like the pyramids. Like, how did they do that? Nobody knows. And composed music that moves people to dance or to weep. And some people hearing the same song have different reactions to that. Meteorology, dentistry, manufacturing, cinematography, fashion, internet highway system that connect communities that were one part could never even talk to each other and carry resources between states. I mean, it's truly, brothers and sisters, it is breathtaking how civilization has become more efficient, more beautiful, more flavorful, and more comfortable due to our creativity and collaborative efforts as a human race. And we should acknowledge that because the Bible acknowledges that. And yet, this is not the only way in which we've become more advanced, is it? Since the rebellion, we have also advanced in the way of Cain. We've also advanced in the way of Cain. And it's here in the text, verse 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wife, his wives, excuse me, his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for just striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Uh, Lamech is a descendant, we know, of Cain, and he speaks in this passage as a representative of the inhabitants of the whole world. Why? Because he's alone. He's the only one talking in the passage. So he kind of like represents all people at this time, particularly in this, this city. Uh, Lamech, Lamech speaks a poem. Uh, scholars call it the Song of the Sword, actually. And that's what they tag this as. And he is loudly declaring, I picture him like kind of like up on this mountain, you know, with like his shirt off, pounding his chest, you know. Listen to what I say. Listen to what I did. Right? He's proclaiming what's in his heart and his mind for the whole world to hear. He's bragging about his cruelty to the whole world. And did you notice he's commanding his wives to hear that and bear witness to it? Did you catch that? He says, listen to me, what I'm about to say. And then he says it to the world. Did you, did you see that? So, so get this, guys. In the midst of all these positive, beneficial advances in civilization, Lamech tells us that the human race has somehow also advanced in corruption at the exact same time. And I think in the text, there's at least three ways that, that he tells us if we listen to his poem. Okay, We've advanced in the way of Cain because relationships have become about possessions and power now. What did we say the very first like two to three weeks of the series? Relationship is like the most fundamental building block of all of reality, right? More fundamental than facts. Remember we're talking about that a lot? 
Here's what's happened to the relationships. They become about possession and power now. Lamech has disregarded God's definition of marriage. Women are things to be collected and commanded. That's what a trophy wife is. He's got a little shelf and he's just going around and he's just collecting wives. See what I got? See what I can get? They're to be collected and commanded instead of to be loved and to be served. That's what we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. He is the sole voice of authority in their life as he commands them to listen to his terrifying poem. Read that poem again when you get home. That's a nightmare poem. You remember Adam? Adam wrote a poem, right? We talked about that. Adam wrote this beautiful poem for, for Eve, his bride Eve, right? And what did he do? He, in that poem, he promised something too. He promised to love her as his own body. I'm going to love and care for her like I love and care for my own body. Remember that? Well, Lamech wrote a poem too, and he wrote it to his wives, but he wrote it to intimidate them so that he would have control over them and that he would flourish, not them. Can we learn anything from this? I think we can. Uh, Lamech makes us all look at ourselves. I mean, that's what the law of God is, right? It's a mirror that we look into and we see ourselves looking back, right? Isn't that what James says? Lemon makes us look at ourselves, especially those of us who are husbands. So we have to ask ourselves the question, is this how we view our wife? I mean, this has been the moral weakness of men ever since the Great Rebellion. And regrettably, it's been much of our legacy. Instead of seeing our wives as partners in the work of God that we've both been given to do, we see them as potential rivals that need to be put in check occasionally. Husbands dominate their wives verbally with boasts and threats. It sounds an awful lot like Lemek's boasts. Some men can just merely use their physical presence or their posture in a room. They don't have to say anything. Just their posture and their presence in the room and how they fill that room up with their personality. And they can intimidate women. Some husbands put their hands on their wives behind closed door at home to teach them a lesson, quote unquote. Yes, even so-called Christian men. Historically, men have had a track record of treating women in the church as less than and being suspicious of them referring to them as temptresses. You see this all through church history. They're temptresses, so watch out. They can't be trusted with power. Maybe you shouldn't even be in the same room with them. You know what might happen. So let me ask you husbands in the room, does your wife feel safe around you? And if you say, yeah, I would say, how do you know? How do you know? So here's some homework. Let me, let, me, let me fill out the question a little bit first, though. What I mean by this, by safe, does she feel safe enough to disagree with you? And does she feel safe enough to move the furniture around while you're gone at work without asking you? 
Um, or does she know that if she does that, she's going to pay a tax? And I know it's not always husbands that do this. Wives can be this way too. But we're talking about Lamech. So your homework, husbands, is to, this week is to ask her sometime this week if she feels safe around you. And watch your posture when you ask the question. Do you feel safe around me? To disagree, move the furniture, what have you? To tell me how you're really feeling? And then listen. And don't debate whatever the answer is. Just hold on to your seat and say, okay. A truly strong man can risk asking that question and not having to defend himself. Okay? Secondly, we've advanced in the way of Cain according to, to the values of Lemek here by wanting revenge instead of justice. There's a desire, there's a wanting of revenge instead of justice. Lemek says this, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lemek's 77-fold, right? And so Lemek declares war on anyone who offends him. He's putting that message out there, just in advance, preemptive strike. I'm just, I'm, I'm going to have war with anybody that just even offends me. So I'm, letting, I'm putting that out there. You're on notice. He says that he killed a man just simply for wounding him. That is way over the top, right? For justice, that is way over the top. That is, in fact, not justice according to uh, the Bible. God's law in Exodus says that true justice is proportional, right? It's an eye for what? An eye. It's a stripe for a stripe. It's a tooth for a tooth. Lemek does not want justice. He wants two eyes for an eye, right? He don't want justice. What's he want? Revenge. He wants revenge. Two eyes for an eye. In fact, he wants to burn down everyone to the ground who even wrongs him. And not only has Lemek made revenge the cultural norm in his city, not only is this the value that's operating in his town, but notice the absence of mercy and forgiveness in the society that he is building. Notice that. Remember, Lemek is speaking as a representative of all the people. Imagine that. Just for a second with me. Just imagine that. Let your mind go here. If every individual or every family adopting this, this value of merciless revenge, can you picture that? Like imagine a world where there was no forgiveness for a repentant wrongdoer. But someone that came to the conclusion, I was wrong and I'm sorry. Like there was no distinction between manslaughter and murder. Like doing it on accident and like second degree murder, right? Imagine a world like that where every wrongdoer is just killed. Like delete your account. That's like the modern day digital version of that. Delete your account. That's saying die. Don't exist. So just imagine this. Imagine, if you will, with me, the bulk effect that that would have on a society after just a few years of living by that value. I'm afraid that we are here as a society. In our pursuit of justice, which, by the way, is a very good and a very godly thing, we have uncoupled justice from mercy. 
And God always keeps that together, right? He says mercy actually triumphs over justice in the Psalms. It is the norm for us to want to revenge for wrongs, even among Christians. I mean, does not the spirit of Lamech live in our hearts too? It lives in mine. You know, we're cut off in traffic. We just burn that person down in our mind, don't we? We burn them down. I want their driver's license number and their license in my pocket, right? Uh, we're offended by a store employee. We want more than an apology. What do we want? I want the job. Where's the manager? We disagree with a policy. We accuse the local officials of being Nazis, murderers. Our natural response to an offense or wrong is to just, just bury that person alive under an avalanche of insults, revenge, criticism, just like Lamech boasted that he was going to do. I'm taking on all comers, right? But there's, there's one other way that we have advanced in the way of Cain, and it's this. We value, and it leads from the second one. We value violence instead of valuing life. really do. And for those of us that are pro-life, we need to think about that all the way to the ground. Okay? Not only is Lamech's response to injustice completely disproportional, it shows disregard for human life. Justice never shows disregard for human life. And he does. He says, quote, I killed a man for wounding me, a boy. That's what a young man in the Hebrew means. It means a child. Did you know that? I killed a boy for striking me, like giving, like bumping into me with a skateboard, right? I killed him. That's what he brags about. He's not ashamed of it. He's advertising that. Lamech will use violence to take the life of a man and take the life of a boy just the same. They're all alike to him. They're all alike to him. He's flattened everything. You see this, brothers and sisters? Life is cheap when you follow the way of Cain and the values of Lamech. The only thing that matters to him is that his life is protected. That his life is protected. Whereas Cain had God's protection over him, Lamech claims that his violent values will provide an even better protection than Almighty God can. How conceited is that? That's what, that's what this kind of violence does. It puffs us up. He thinks that when word gets around that he will indiscriminately unleash a torrent of violence on the bodies of children and adults alike who wrong him, no one's going to dare mess with him. You, you remember Cain? What did Cain say? Cain said, I'm not my brother's keeper. I don't care about my brother. Not my responsibility to look after him, Right? That was kind of callous. Lamech goes further. Lamech goes further and declares that not only is he not his brother's keeper, he's his neighbor's enemy. I was in the neighborhood first, and you stepped on my property. So here comes the whirlwind. Not your friend. Today, do we do this? We put up humorous signs on our houses and our cars to let people know that we'll happily use violence if they trespass against us. 
or our property. Advertise it and laugh about it. We go to town hall meetings and we open threaten, pe- threaten people that are there that bad things are coming and they don't do what we want. So let's just do a little thought experiment for a second, okay? Just think with me. Let's get inside this story here. Imagine if the majority of people in a, in a town flew a flag on their truck or put a sticker on their car or put signs on their house or on the windows of their you know, business that they do business in. And it communicated the threat of violence. Or maybe it did it this way. It communicated, you will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, which is another way of saying what? Without mercy, right? Now just think with me. What might be the cumulative effect of seeing that sign and that message, hundreds and hundreds of these messages from other citizens all over the town, day in and day out. What do you think would be the bulk effect, the accumulation effect of all that after a while? If, let's just imagine, like everywhere you look, you saw people sending out this message to you. I have no problem destroying your life no matter who you are or what you did. I will have no mercy on you. I mean, let me ask you this question. Do you think that it would be easier or do you think it would be more difficult to justify violence in that kind of a community? Uh, Do you think that people would be more likely to see others as potential neighbors? Or do you think after a while they start seeing each other as potential enemies to be suspicious of? You see, here's what I'm, I'm nudging towards, okay? The great irony of this story and I don't want us to miss it, is that the more civilized that we become as a human race, the less civilized we become. So what's the way out of this mess? If the more civilized we become and advance and progress, the more uncivilized we become, what's the way out of this mess? I just paint myself into a corner? (laughs) No, we need the gospel. But we need the gospel with feet on it. We must be people who call upon the name of the Lord. It's not optional. It's not a good suggestion. It's a mandate. It's a mandate. Genesis 4.26, it's the last verse. Check this out, guys. To Seth also was born, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Remember God made a promise to Eve uh, that uh, from her would come a savior. And that's, this son would crush the serpent and all of his spiritual descendants, right? Remember that? Genesis 3, 15. Now, her seed, God said, would be the savior. Seth replaces the son that Cain murdered. Okay? So the name of Seth, by the way, literally means seed. Did you know that? Not a coincidence. I have a son. His name is Seed. <laughs> What's she doing? What's mama doing? I'm reminding myself of the promise of God. This good news that's coming, right? 
His descendants are worshipers of God. That's what his kids are doing. They're all worshiping and calling on the name of the Lord, unlike the kids and grandkids of Cain, right? His other brother. So here's the thing. These Sethites are declaring the name of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? The name of the Lord. The nature of God. The character of who this God is, right? They're talking about it. They're, they're, they may not be talking about it necessarily with their words, but their life is speaking of the name of the Lord. And they're declaring, these Sethites are declaring the nature of God in a society that is walking in the way of Cain and in the values of Lamech. That's where they're doing that. These Sethites, uh, the, the Sethites' message to the people of the town is this. God is just. God is merciful. God is Savior. Worship Him. Art, education, technology, scientific discoveries. These are all good, and these are all helpful to humans. But they cannot change the murderous and rebellious spirit that is within all of us. Me too. We, we need help. God must rescue us. How? Through his seed, through his son, and that is exactly what Jesus came to do, who is a descendant of Seth, by the way. Go read the genealogies. Lamech proclaims that he will kill a man for merely wounding him, and he'll kill a little boy just for bruising him. But amazingly, Jesus, the king of all power and the king of all glory, has come to declare to you and me, sinners, that he has forgiven all of our rebellion against him. He's forgiven all of our wounding and all of our insulting and all of our damage to him. That's what his message is. That's what he came to say, not to good people, but these really complex, mixed-up people like you and me. Isn't that amazing? Unlike you and me, Jesus was way more wounded by others than we'll ever be. Jesus was crucified, not wounded, right? Unlike you and I, Jesus was the recipient of the greatest injustice in the history of civilization. But instead of calling down an avalanche of revenge upon you and me, Jesus walks in the line of Seth. And he, on that cross, in front of everyone, what does he call out and say? He calls out to God, and he calls out upon the name of the Lord, right? He calls out to God to pour out an avalanche of grace and an avalanche of forgiveness upon you and me. That is what we have received from Jesus for our grievous sins. We have received a disproportionate amount of mercy, a disproportionate amount of forgiveness from Jesus Christ. That's the good news of Jesus. Hallelujah. And you know what? He tells you and me to give that forgiveness to those that wrong us in society. We are to be the Sethites in the cities of Cain, the Cainites. Jesus teaches us this in Matthew 18, 21 and 22. Then Peter came up to Jesus and he said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? 
And Jesus said to him, hmm, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. And Jesus being a student of the Torah must have been thinking about that poem of Lemek when he taught this way, the way of forgiveness, don't you think? He didn't just pull that number out of his thing, blue sky, did he? Lemek promised revenge on wrongdoers, not seven, but 77 full, right? And Jesus says, and he teaches you and me, forgive not seven, but 77 fold. He's reversing this way. It's a new way to live the Jesus way. The way Christians are salt and light in a society is that we refuse to walk in the way of Cain or live by the values of Lemek. That's how you and I are salt and light. Not by our t-shirts. But by what we value and how we walk out our walk. You and I will be able to forgive others to the degree that we understand how much Jesus has forgiven us. He has forgiven us innumerable times of incalculable sins. And so let us be people who proclaim his name to the world with our actions. I love you guys. Let's pray. All wise God, thank you for the words of Psalm 139, 14. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. Lord, I pray that you would help each and every one of us see and appreciate how complex we are as humans. To not be afraid of it, not mute it, not deride it, but embrace it because you've made us complex. But Lord, I pray that you'd also help us see that it does lead to problems and we need a Savior. We need you, Jesus, who has walked the way so that we can walk after you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Forgive us of our sin. Put a new light inside of us, a new power inside of us to live your way. In Jesus' sacred name we pray, amen.